Welcome to the Consummate Athlete Podcast, where we explore what it means to be a well-rounded, happy, goal-crushing athlete. Every week, myself, sports journalist Molly Herford, and cycling coach and kinesiologist Peter Glassford interview experts and chat through all of your training questions. We're excited to have you along for the ride. Hello, hello. Welcome back to the Consummate Athlete Podcast. Peter, how's it going? Well, it's good. My new co-host... <laughs> <laughs> here with a raspy voice hey i have been told that this voice sounds fantastic so we're well, just shaking it while we got it i guess so so yeah who do we have today we're going to keep this uh short or or do you want to start with any updates do you have updates a lot of good stuff going on over on the site. I feel like we've gotten a lot of comments and interest in our article about trainer efficiency. Do you yes, want to just we kind of... Well, we went with the clickbaity title of like the trainer is not efficient or something to this is effect. Is the trainer efficient? Well, okay. We asked as a question, so it wasn't that clickbaity. Uh, and yeah, it really gets at this idea of, uh, I guess, a question I often get or a, often it's a, it's a statement that, you know, we use the trainer because it's it's more efficient. And then I always come back to, you know, it always just sort of strikes me as odd because it, it's not necessarily efficient at achieving the goal. Efficiency it means that it's it, it doesn't waste, it's not wasteful, but it also achieves the goal. So it's efficient, but at what? And so it's often we mean time efficient, I think, uh, or that we don't need to think. But uh, it's not necessarily efficient when it comes to the goal that you're actually trying to achieve. Right. So it, it, we use all tools. And, and during the general preparation, which often means winter, it, prob it it is a great tool. We use it. It's not that we don't. It, it's that as we get closer to a hot gravel race in a mountainous region with people, uh, with flats, with fueling, with hydration, with uh, bumpy roads, river crossings, there's reasons that people fall apart, right? And, and it often isn't just engine related. And there's a study, I didn't actually add it and I need to add it still to the post so it hopefully will be there when people hear this. Uh, but it's a great study just looking at uh, all these other studies, it's a meta-analysis of, of what are the determinants of, of cycling uh, performance in different disciplines. And even in road, it was it's quite low. Uh, you know, it's there. You need to, to be in the game. You need fitness. But once you start thinking about the reasons people don't finish things like Leadville crashing, uh, nutritional, like what was the, do you remember the study? The ultra running one was one of the good ones. It was like 75% of participants had gut issues. And the other 25% are lied. Lied about it. Yeah. So I don't know. All that to say, we looked at just, you know, this idea of specificity and, and the quote unquote efficiency. What are we being efficient at? Yeah, I really like that. And I think it actually lends itself well to today's guest, actually. So we have Shannon O'Grady of Gnarly Nutrition. She's the COO, but she also has a PhD in nutritional physiology uh, and also, you know, has kind of a previous life as an endurance athlete turned Brazilian jiu-jitsu competitor. And, uh, you know, if you've listened to our recent uh, episode with Verena Pelletier or Aaron Eastrick, you know, I'm kind of obsessed with boxing. So I think she might have actually convinced me that BJJ is the way to go. Okay. Well, um, it's it tends to be, I'm not going to say it's trendy because it's been around for a long time, but it does seem like a, a popular discipline. She said it's good for the small people. So I was like, all right, perfect. I'm in. Um, okay. Like it, it favors it's it's something that us like short people can do effectively, which I I appreciate. Okay, well we may have to try it. I have such a block around violence, uh, whether it's it's like sh target shooting or any sort of combat. I have such a a block. Okay, so if not news, fear, I, I would say it's a fear almost. Good news. I asked her the same question I asked Verena, which is how do you punch someone in the face? Well, we're maybe not. I don't know if I'm quite to that. <laughs> is this helpful? I think that's super interesting because I mean, if you think about it, most of us are pretty conditioned to not punch somebody in the face. So when you're suddenly like 
in a non you're in a violent situation as a non-violent individual who's not like angry at the person you're you're fighting if you actually do get into the competitive side of bjj or boxing Mm -hmm. but suddenly you have to go after someone and punch them in the face even though like they've done nothing to you okay well maybe don't punch them in the face maybe you could just grapple or or... i don't think that's how you win boxing well boxing yeah you probably have to punch them in the face i guess but okay well, anyway, that's, that's good. It's a super interesting conversation. We uh, we're mainly talking nutrition, though, which is the efficient versus effective thing. I mean, first of all, we're talking obviously. You know, you need to try your nutrition, trial it, make sure it's working for you, um, and the short term versus long term sort of side of nutrition. I think is interesting when when you're talking about trainer efficiency. It's efficient in the short term, but it might not be in the long term when it comes to your actual goals. Um, And I think nutrition has sort of that short-term and long-term thing. I always say, like, you can have the most perfect race day nutrition, but if your nutrition has been absolute garbage for, like, the months leading up to it, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, all the the perfect nutrition timing in the world is not going to save you in a race. Well, and and the the body you've built, the, you know, the machinery uh, is determined by that long-term nutrition. Exactly, yeah. Okay. So yeah, I think this is a super interesting episode. Uh, definitely hit us up if you're enjoying. We've had so many really good nutrition experts on lately. So let us know if you have any questions for them. Uh, head over to consummateathlete.com to grab the show notes. And also, I keep forgetting to mention, but we do have a couple like excellent freebies uh, for signing up for our newsletter. Some good PDFs and all different uh, healthy habit tools and stuff. So consummateathlete.com and check that out. All right. Enjoy this episode with Shannon O'Grady. First of all, uh, Shannon, welcome to the Consummate Athlete Podcast. I'm so excited to have you on. Thanks. I'm happy to be on. Um, I'm looking through and listening to some of the, your previous episodes. Like it's an honor. It's it, you have such a well-rounded podcast, well-rounded guests, and yeah. Thanks for having me. Oh, thank you. Well, I'm I'm super excited because you also have a pretty like well-rounded background, I would say. Um, so we usually just kind of start with asking everyone to, to just give us their, their sort of athletic background and bio before we get into what they do sort of in real life. So yeah, where, where have you been as an athlete? Where are you now? Give us the sure. details. All over the place. I always like, but <laughs> that's what describe. we love on this podcast. Yeah, <laughs> I always say I have a sad or sports attention deficit disorder in that I've jumped all over the place. Love it. I love it so much. <laughs> Although it makes me happy. It doesn't actually make me sad, but um, I have always been a runner run since I was, I don't know. I think I did my first race when I was six, just always liked it. Um, and started running longer distances kind of in college and in graduate school, um, got into triathlon, did Ironman, did some ultra marathons, did some ultra, you know, biking, Leadville 100 type, Lodija type stuff. Um, and just, you know, I always thought endurance was my thing, stubborn, like to put my head down, like to eat all those things kind of work well, you know, for <laughs> endurance activities. Um, and then I was doing a, um, a team building exercise with, uh, my company gnarly nutrition, and we would do different activities. None of us had been exposed to as a way to kind of like, you know, get the team together, get to know each other a little bit better. And, um, we were trying jujitsu, um, at a gym that was near our office. And this was about six years ago. And I was instantly intrigued, curious, wanted to try it more. And I was, I was training for a 50 mile race at the time. And I just decided that as soon as that race was done, I was going to give jujitsu, you know, 
a chance, try it out. And, you know, here I am six years later, still completely obsessed and I still run, I still mountain bike, you know, I still climb. Um, I didn't mention that, but do that as well. Uh, but jujitsu is kind of my, it's my thing. I love it more than, more than anything else. I feel like running and getting out on trails and getting up on ridgelines, um, is it hits, you know, scratches something different for me, like being outside. Um, but yeah, it, it's jujitsu is my true love. <laughs> it's so funny because I I've been saying for the past two months, I had taken my sister to a boxing lesson for Christmas. That was her like Christmas present. And I took like the one lesson. I was like, Oh my God, I love boxing. This is so cool, but I have to get through this hundred miler first. And then I did that. <laughs> and then I was like, Oh, well that went well. So now I need to do these other big endurance events this summer. But after that, totally going to start at the boxing gym. And I keep having like boxing people on because now I'm kind of obsessed with it. So I completely understand. Um, but I mean, it's funny though, because trail running and jujitsu or boxing, like they're very, very different. So what was it about jujitsu that made you like intrigued by it? Like what drew you in? Yeah. I mean, I, when I describe it to people, it's kind of like chess with your body. Uh, um, it's this interesting combination of, um, technique. So it's very technical. Um, obviously strength can be helpful, but it's not like a prerequisite, um, flexibility and, and power. Um, each opponent, you know, has a different game. And so each opponent presents like a different problem, much as you would sit across a different opponent um, on a chessboard. And um, it, it's both humbling and empowering at the same time. So empowering because often, you know, one of the great things about jujitsu, it's one of the best martial arts for self-defense, especially for smaller people, because you're using angles and leverage to get, you know, an upper hand. Um, and so empowering in that way, but also humbling because you get your ass kicked on a regular basis. Um, so it's also these weird intimate bonds with people. Cause you're essentially like wrestling them. Their privates are all up in your face and you're all over them. You know, you're sweating on each other. So, but it, it's like the, my community and jujitsu, we're all really tight for that reason. Um, yeah. So I'd say all of those all of those reasons stacked up into one. I've always been fairly scrappy, you know? So I think that, you know, is a good, uh, good attribute to have in any kind of fighting sport. And, um, yeah, it's taught, it's taught me a lot and given me a lot and it's a really good way to take out stress. <laughs> so. I love it. I love it. Okay. Two follow-up questions that I also just asked a boxer on a recent episode. Um, okay. One, Actually, I don't know if, would you throw a punch in jujitsu necessarily? Okay. The, the jujitsu equivalent of throwing a punch, like uh, attacking someone with the attempt to actually hurt them, in whatever, whatever way we're doing it. How do you do that? Because I feel like I would struggle. So this is like my sticking point for martial arts is like the actual, like fighting part of it, where you actually are going to, to attempt to hit someone to hurt them. Yeah. How do so, you get past that block? <laughs> it was never a block for me. <laughs> I'm not sure what Best that answer. says. I'm not sure what that says for me about me. Um, I think you know it's interesting to think about it in terms of being on the giving and the receiving end. And That's so there my are, second question actually yeah. was uh, how do you handle the fact that you're gonna get hit in the face? <laughs> so there I would say I you know I have I 
have done a little bit of Muay Thai, but I, I'm not in a striking sport. I think that may be different. It'd be interesting to see what a boxer thought about um, joint locks and chokes, but there are like degrees before it gets serious, right? So um, being a good training partner and even against a competitor, you know, if, I, if I'm doing a tournament, I'm not going to like, it might be different at the pro levels, but I'm not going to throw on a joint lock instantaneously with the goal of blowing up somebody's joint, right? You, you, if you, you're, you're controlling the position enough. And as the person on the receiving end, I also know when it's a threat um, and when I have to be worried. And for me, I tap early and tap often. Like I tapping is for those that don't know is the way you let, it's like crying uncle, right? Um, it's a way you let people know you, you give up and um, I'm never going to risk my health or even ability to continue to do my sport because of, you know, the result of a single match or a single role in the gym. And most Mm -hmm. of the training people that I train with, you know, that's how they train with me. And that's how I train with them. I'm not trying to hurt them. We're all trying to get better and progress in the sport. And so, um, you know, you, you put on uh, submission attempts like that with a lot of control. Um, Mm -hmm. Interestingly, my daughter competes too. And sometimes she, she, um, she was just in a tournament and, and the little boy didn't tap and she wasn't trying to hurt him, but his elbow popped and she felt so bad. And it wasn't like, she didn't, she didn't like break his elbow or anything like that. He turned around and she had another match with him and, and, uh, he beat her in the second match, but she was so concerned that she, I mean, she's 10 and she was so concerned that she hurt him. Um, so that's never the goal, right? You're never, you're never trying to hurt someone. But can we talk about how wonderful it is that your daughter is in co-ed jujitsu and beat the crap out of a boy? <laughs> she beat the crap out of four boys. <laughs> Amazing. So good. Um, okay. Next question, actually. Uh, tournaments. Uh, tournaments versus the starting line of an endurance event that's going to take all day. Which is, uh, are they, is it the same feeling or was one of them scarier than the other? What's the difference? <laughs> that's a great question. Um, I would always get nervous before I haven't done and I still run, I still mountain bike, but I haven't like signed up for an endurance event since that 50 pre pre jujitsu. Um, and I remember like being nervous, having goals, um, being worried I wasn't going to achieve those goals. But then as soon as the, the gun went off, um, being like, Oh yeah, that's my thing. Like just riding my bike or I'm just running. Like this is, like I'm enjoy, I'm in the moment and enjoying it. Um, pre jujitsu match, still really nervous. I think the unknown of like a person and their strategy. There's also for me a big part of it is performance anxiety because there's like a crowd watching you, and I don't care about the people I don't know, but like my team, it's not. They're totally supportive, but they're all like, "You're gonna, you're gonna." in there and they have all these like you know high ex not high expectations but they want you to do well and they you know are trying to instill you with confidence and you don't want to let them down you don't want to let your coach down who's yelling at you you want to do your best um and that's a big part of it for me too is just that anxiety that comes with like trying to do my best trying to um do what i know i can do and then there's an adrenaline rush also because it's like you go from zero to 100 pretty quickly um, when you're in a, in a match. Yeah, yeah. 
Oh man. Okay. So we, we have to like back up to the fact that you also have a PhD in nutritional physiology. Um, yeah. So just to be clear, my doctorate's in biology. My thesis was in nutritional physiology. Just there we go. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, um, the, I guess what I really wanted to ask about that is just the, how has your nutrition shifted from endurance sport into jujitsu? Because I imagine it's a very different, uh, set of needs. I mean, similar, but still like there are definitely differences there. Um, but I, yeah, let's start with that. And then we're going to back up to how you got interested in it and how it like has gone with your early life. Yeah. Sure. Once, a, once again, a really great question. Um, yeah. So I, you know, I, I what like we talked about earlier, I like to eat a lot that serves me well. It served me well in, in nutrition, um, endurance nutrition. And I think early on, I realized I'm not going to finish any of these races unless I get pretty, um, pretty surgical about what I'm taking in, when I'm taking in, um, you know, figuring out what works with my gut, figuring out the amount of calories that I need, um, and figuring out what foods, uh, are going to best support, not just performance, but also recovery. So that worked really well with being in graduate school and just nerding out on research in general. Um, now, I think as, as I've shifted to something that's way more high intensity what I, and, and not something that you consume calories during, like if we're looking at a specific match, um, but what I'm really interested in as far as my own uh, nutrition is like what I'm consuming beforehand, what I'm consuming after. And then uh, at jujitsu tournaments, right, once you enter a bullpen, um, you know, you have a match and you might have anywhere from five to 30 minutes before your next match. So how am I, what does my nutrition look like in that break in order to make sure that I have the energy I need for subsequent matches? Um, and sometimes, you know, you can have nine, you know, six minute matches over the course of a day. And those are like 100% efforts. So um, figuring out how to fuel that, um, which is a little bit different from kind of the more like slow IV drip of nutrition that you see um, with endurance sports. I also think, you know, I made some mistakes early on in martial arts, it, it especially jujitsu, there's that connection with wrestling and this idea that um, you want to cut weight in order to be, so you can be the bigger monkey in your weight division. Um, and you know, so when I started, people were like, oh, well, you're, this is your natural weight. You should cut five pounds to be in this lower weight division. And so I was doing that. And, um, and I was not, I was having some success, but I would, you know, at a big tournament would win my first, maybe my second match. And then I'd feel my energy levels totally crash in my, my, you know, third match. And it, it's usually single elimination. So I'd, I'd be out. Um, and I'd had two occasions like that at world masters, which is like the old person world, um, championship in, in jujitsu. And, uh, I was talking to my coach after, and he was like, just focus on getting strong. He's like, who you know, just move up a weight class and just focus on getting strong. So that's what I did. And, um, I won worlds the next year and I won it this, the year after, and, um, I got second last year. And so I had, I've had so much more success being the small monkey in my weight category 
but being hydrated and being fueled appropriately. It's so funny how that translates from sport to sport. We often talk about, we had Dean Golich on one of our earliest episodes and he coaches, he coached tons of Olympic uh, mountain bikers. And we asked him about like power to weight ratio and cycling. And he's like, I just tell them not to worry about the weight. And if you just focus on raising the power, you're going to come to like the right balance and you're going to be in like a better place to actually perform. And it's clearly the best advice pretty much across disciplines. <laughs> I yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I, I think time and time again, and it's, it's really nice to see that shift um, from, you know, my high school coach telling me like, you need to lose a little bit of weight to, you know, now it's like, no, in order to perform, you need to eat. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I, and I hear it more and I, and I'm hoping like, it's nice to hear it in mountain biking. I'm hoping that it, it kind of spans, you know, all sports, especially those where power to weight ratio is, is, has been, you know, emphasized. Mm -hmm. So how did you end up in sort of the nutrition and physiology? How did that end up being your, your thesis? I feel like typically, like you just mentioned your high school coach. I feel like most endurance athletes who've come to study this stuff have had some kind of like reason they studied this stuff. Yeah. So to be fully clear, my thesis had nothing to do with sports nutrition. Um, my thesis was looking at, uh, physiological and morpho morphological adaptations to either a plant diet or a animal diet in animals. Um, oh, interesting. Yeah. So I was always really interested in nutrition, but initially really interested in it more of like an ecological perspective. Um, I think had I found endurance sports earlier, like I did marathons in, in college, but um, I think you can kind of fudge nutrition a little bit you know, maybe not at like upper ends when you're pushing performance, but if you're doing your first few marathons, you can make a little, a lot of mistakes and still complete a marathon. Whereas Especially when you're in, tw in your twenties, when in you're your in your twenties, exactly. pretty much anything <laughs> nutritionally, exactly. you could just be a that, dumpster and you're fine. <laughs> that is, that is so true. A truer thing may not have ever been said in nutrition. Um, yeah. So it wasn't until I was in graduate school doing my thesis when I really got into, you know, more endurance sports. And when I'm saying endurance, I'm saying things lasting like six hours and longer. So like half, half Ironman, you know, to longer, I think the longest events I've done have, have taken on order of 14 hours. I've never done hundred mile runs or, or things of that nature. Um, so then, you know, I got really interested in kind of sports nutrition, um, as a scientific, you know, uh, in uh, field of study or, or looking into the research, looking in what I could do, looking at what my friends could do. Um, even at that point, like making my own bars, like going as far as to like introduce my interest of cooking and, um, and where it overlapped and foods that worked for me and correct calorie intake. Um, and when I, chose a postdoc, which is a postdoc is what you often do. It's like a research project after your thesis, you work in another lab to gain um, a new skill set to, to also expose yourself to a new lab before maybe you move on in academia. I um, looked at a, a worked on a project where we use stable isotopes to track um, water use in humans giving diet and exercise and um, diff different factors, uh, lifestyle factors. Um, so as a postdoc, 
um, I worked more kind of in the field of um, human nutrition and the impact that sport could have um, specifically on water metabolism. And then I just didn't really want to stay in academia. I was a research assistant professor. I loved teaching. I taught everything from physiology, um, some nutrition classes, even some field ecology classes. I loved it. But um, I wanted to stay in the mountain state. I wanted to keep access to the trails. Um, I didn't want to move to the Midwest. And it seems like for tenure track positions, usually your first position, you kind of have to move anywhere. So um, I looked at the supplement industry, which I live in, in Utah, and it's a pretty big industry in Utah. And I took a position, a product development position. And um, from there, uh, moved into a manufacturing position. So a quality role where I got a lot of exposure um, to FDA regulations of supplement manufacturing and um, quality certifications like audit systems to make sure that manufacturers and brands are following those regulations. Um, and it was during that time I found um, Gnarly Nutrition. I had a friend who was an athlete for them and uh, basically was like, Gnarly, that's a really weird name for a sports nutrition company, and looked at their products. And we kind of shared the same code of ethics as far as um, formulating products, what to include, what not to include, like not using proprietary blends, things of that nature. So I sent him my resume and um, the rest is history. I love it. So you are the COO slash CPO. So what exactly is your, is your role with Gnarly now? So I'll just say we're a pretty small company. So I wear a lot of hats. That's why I've got two titles. Um, I, I get many much, letters. Yeah. <laughs> All the letters. Um, I pretty much uh, handle anything that products touch. So um, I, I get to, you know, come up with product ideas um, design the products, work with athletes to test the products. Um, you know, that goes all the way to then working with our manufacturers to actually make the products. Um, I handle all of our, uh, you know, quality certification. So NSF certification, um, I do everything from ordering packaging to handling inventory, um, and then I also get to do a lot with education. So, um, I give a lot of uh, nutrition seminars for a lot of the race series we partner with. Um, I get to write a lot and um, yeah, we do, we do some virtual, we started over the pandemic doing these clinic series virtually when we were all kind of stuck at home. Um, and so I get to do some of those, but we, we also, I also do those for, for partners that we work with as well. I think nice. that's my favorite part. I like, it, it's not so much a like, let me tell you about gnarly way. It's more of like, let me tell you about high quality protein and why it's important and where, how you should optimize your intake. And if you're, you know, an aging female, why it's more important. And, you know, so, um, what I try to do is educate about nutrition. And if gnarly is a product that works for someone, you know, I think nutrition is not one size fit all fits all. And so definitely open to the fact that different, different things work for different folks. Um, and luckily, you know, I'm not a salesperson, so I don't have to. <laughs> yep. Yep. I love it. I love it. And actually, uh, one thing I, I saw that you had written was back in December, Gnarly started working towards the NSF certification for products. Um, so, you know, for us, we talk about that all the time because whether or not you're competing and getting tested, um, it's, 
shocking how many supplement companies don't do any third-party testing and you just have no idea what's in the products, um, which, I mean, I'm sure some companies are totally above board and wonderful, even though they don't do third-party testing. But uh, as an athlete, that makes me incredibly nervous. So I was so excited when I saw that. So wh- why did that matter as, as a company? Yeah. So, I mean, I think a lot of people see supplements and they think, oh, they're not FDA regulated. And they actually are. There are FDA regulations um, for supplement manufacturers. Um, The hard part is that they're hard to enforce because, you know, anybody can pop up and with the latest, you know, supplement brand and and start selling it. And it's hard to. To enforce the regulations they have on the many companies that exist. Um, supplement regulations are actually stricter than, than food regulations per the FDA. Um, so companies are required to do third-party testing. Um, that third-party testing, sometimes you don't know is done as a consumer because it doesn't require you to put a specific seal on your product. I've seen some products that put like a GMP, which is stands for good manufacturing practices. And essentially that's a something that's trying to say that they follow those FDA regulations, but they've had some graphic designer make up that seal. It's not actually like a a certification by um, an auditing body. So that's where NSF or groups like NSF come come in. USP is another one, US Pharmacopeia. I think Informed Choice is another one that um, does uh, the world, like the testing for the banned substances on the World Anti-Doping Agency test. But these are auditing bodies that go in to the manufacturer. So there's certification on the manufacturing level where they make sure that they're following those good manufacturing practices in cases of manufacturers that are NSF or sport certified. They can't even have any ingredients on that banned substances list in their warehouse, right? Which limits the likelihood that your product's going to be cross-contaminated by somebody else's product that has crap in it. Um, there's also certifications on the brand level, um, which relate to the product. So NSF, um, has two different levels of testing content certified testing, which tests for label claims. It does a, um, safety and toxicology analysis. So looking at all the ingredients and making sure that given the way the product's supposed to be used, you're not taking in things that are going to be harmful to you in dosages that would be harmful. Um, they, they test for heavy metals, they test for microbes, and then they do a, a pesticide screen. Um, and then on top of that, products that are NSF or sports certified are tested for all those things I just mentioned, but then they're also tested for those banned substances. And in those cases with, the, with auditing parties like that, you do have that seal. And so you do know that those products are getting that extra test, mm-hmm. those extra tests. Yeah. And I mean, I imagine even just for, for you guys as a company to just have that, because I mean, you do have pro athletes, right? Like, <laughs> like it must be terrifying to, to be a pro athlete and be trying to like make these decisions and, you know, having that label just makes you feel a lot better about what you're doing. Yeah, because product contamination is a real thing. I mean, there, I, I, I don't know, there's some scary statistics out there where, um, you know, scientific bodies have taken like 300, you know, different supplement brands and tested them for those substances and found something like 75% of them were contaminated with trace levels. So it is a real problem. And 
you know, pro athletes don't want to have all of their hard work ruined by a positive doping test that they didn't knowingly consume. Um, and then, you know, us just active athletes don't want that crap in my body. Like I'm not, you know, I, I, I'm not choosing to take that. I, I, I don't want it in my product and I shouldn't have it in my product. So Mm -hmm. I think, I think it's good. The testing is good all around. Mm -hmm. Yes. So probably skip the uh, super cheap powders that are available in Walmart and GNC. (laughs) I'd say any product that has a proprietary blend. um, You know, I think that's a a big one too, that people don't realize. I actually just had this chat um, with a woman who She's like, oh, I always thought proprietary blends was like, oh, the company put extra effort into like figuring out what works. And like, no, really, like if they put that much extra effort into it, it would be patented. Um, secondarily, the reason why proprietary blends exist are twofold. One, because you're not being transparent about the amount of each ingredient in that blend that's in the products. You just put a total amount for the blend. So let's say it's like, usually it has a fancy name, right? Like super antioxidant, anti-inflammatory blend, like five grams, right? And then it has 50 ingredients in there. So for me as a supplement manufacturer, I could put one milligram of the most expensive ingredient in there and then fill the rest of that total amount with all of those cheaper ingredients. And I can say I have that really fancy ingredient in there that you've heard about and you really want, but little do you know that it's like fairy dust compared to everything else. And secondarily, because it's in a blend, I can't test for it because there's no way to like, for example, you know, you can test for the amount of potassium in a banana, but you can't test for a banana, right? So it's, it's the same way. It's a way, it's a sneaky way to get around testing. And it's a sneaky way to say you have certain ingredients in your product when you're not including them at effective dosages. Such a good point. I love it. I love it. Um, Okay. Let's, let's back this out. Let's talk in broad terms, basic, basic rules for fueling that you've kind of learned over the years. So, you know, you give this talk to athletes all the time. So hit us sort of with our, what are our best practices for fueling our rides and runs? Sure. Don't be afraid of carbohydrates. I think that's a big one, right? Um, I think that, you know, we like to point our fingers at certain things and make them the like, you know, evil, evil thing of, you know, it was fat in the eighties and now, now it's been carbs for far too long. Um, Carbohydrates are our friends. Um, definitely we use both carbs and fat as fuel, um, especially when we're talking about aerobic metabolism, but because carbohydrates are so limiting in our system, we can only store a certain amount, especially in endurance activities. We go through that amount relatively quickly. Um, it's important to refuel regularly with carbohydrates. When I say that I also huge mistake people make is they never practice or work through what types of carbs or the amount of carbs that, that work for them. So if you want your nutrition to work on race day, you need to work on your nutrition on your training runs that mimic race day. So both in terms of intensity, both in terms of length, you know, time on your feet, time on your bike, whatever it is. Um, so that takes time. It takes time to train your gut to, to get in more calories, most of us are 
doing whatever endurance event we want and building a small caloric deficit over time that gets bigger and bigger and bigger the longer that we're out there. And so we need to try to maximize those calories and that you need to figure out by practicing your nutrition. I think hands down, that's the thing that I see most is, is, you know, everybody knows the adage, like never try anything new on race day, but for some reason that doesn't apply to nutrition and it should, like it really should, um, you should work that out and have a plan. Um, also I think a lot of people don't eat before they train, right? You wake up first thing in the morning and you just go out there and do your run or your ride. You're not going to get the most out of that training unless you have a little bit of food in your belly, um, carbohydrates once again. So finding something that is, has simple carbohydrates that you're going to absorb quickly. That's about hundred to 120 calories. If you can get that in your system, 20 to 30 minutes before you start exercising, you're going to get so much more out of your workout. So don't, you know, the reason why, you know, we fasted essentially overnight. There's a reason why breakfast is called breakfast because you're breaking your fast. So you need, if you're getting up and training before you've eaten, you need to make sure you have a small snack. And then, you know, of course, the same thing, following up that training with some good protein and carbohydrates to replenish glycogen stores and give your muscles the essential amino acids they need to, to repair and rebuild. That's the way you're going to get the most out of your training. So I'd say those are my major tenants of, <laughs> of fueling and sports nutrition and, um, yeah. Love it. Yeah. We are perfectly aligned on that. Um, I actually really like the point about the, the no, nothing new on race day. And I actually hadn't really ever thought about it as applied to the actual amount that you're consuming, because I'm definitely like an, we'll say I'm an under fueler during training and then like an adequate fueler during racing. Uh, and I've gotten better. Like they're, Good. they're coming yes. closer and closer <laughs> together as I, as I get older and get better at this. Um, but definitely that was like a learning thing for me. Cause I was like, Oh, like I know tailwind works with my stomach. Like, great. Yeah. No problem. Or like, I know I can eat a Reese's uh, peanut butter cup, you know, mid run and it's no problem. But the actual like amount that I needed to take in during a long race was not something that I had like practiced in shorter training runs. And I really should have. So that's something I've learned over time is the amount matters too. <laughs> Fully. And I think, you know, as we try to maximize those calories, that's where it gets a little like iffy, whether or not it's going to cause gut distress. So exactly. There's, yeah. there's room for error earlier on when maybe you're just starting to get a little more, um, a little more serious about the nutrition you take in while you exercise. But then as you try to up it, that's where practice becomes important because um, you'll find that there might be a line. And if you cross it, you're going to be in the porta potty more than you want to be. Exactly. And anyone who's listened to this podcast knows that I am all about how we can avoid the porta potty line as often as possible. <laughs> <laughs> I think during my, my, during my first half Ironman ever, I like was like, I'm going to take a goo every 30 minutes. That's my plan. Like every 30 minutes. I think I spent, I mean, I don't, I don't need to get into details, but I'll just say I spent a lot of quality time in the porta potty after that. That was way too much for me. I hadn't practiced it. I did not take in enough water to dilute all that concentrated sugar. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with goo. I think it can work great for people, but I did not do my homework and I took in way too much for, for what my system at the time could handle. 
Yep. I think uh, my, my first Ironman, I did the exact opposite with the exact same effect where I think uh, during the bike, I had maybe half a pack of like shot blocks and that was literally it. And like a couple bottles of water. And then on the run, I was like, why does my stomach hurt so much? I think it was just so empty. <laughs> I like couldn't get anything down because it was just in such distress. Um, yeah. Also not fun. Also ended up in the med tent with an IV in me after it, but finished. So yeah. call that a win, I guess. But well se- second time, second time around, I was much smarter about how much <laughs> I, uh, much I consumed. <laughs> Okay. So, uh, we talked about sort of our fueling mistakes. One thing I really like hearing from people who've been in this industry for a while is what was true about nutrition when you started in sport versus what we know now. And we kind of alluded to some of that earlier when we were talking about the power to weight and how that stuff doesn't matter. But in addition to that, is there anything else or is that sort of the main thing? I mean, I think that's the main thing for me. Um, and also just the lack of nutrition education, right? So both of us have talked about how when we kind of got more into endurance sports, we just didn't really know how to start or we didn't know how to how to fuel. I think because that emphasis was so much on like lighter is better, like food should be limited it, so you could be lighter. So true in power to weight ratio, so true when you overlap that with like an endurance cardio you know, piece as well. Um, cause you see that in sports like climbing, which is something we work with a lot of climbers, my family, we climb a lot, you know, and you see that a lot in that sport, but then if you put running on top of it, it, it almost seems to be more of a problem. Um, and now, as we talked about, I've been so happy to see that in climbing and mountain biking, as you mentioned, and in running, we're talking more about fueling athletes and less about limiting food in order to maximize power to weight ratio by being lighter. Um, and that's the biggest thing I've seen. I think we still have a ton of work to do. Um, and I think the education piece at a young, younger age needs to happen. So, um, whether it's getting dietitians, you know, sport certified dietitians into high schools, working with high school teams, um, continuing through, you know, collegiate competitive sports, but even club sports, like we need people to think more about nutrition and to establish healthier relationships with food earlier on. And then you're not starting from zero when you discover it in your twenties. A hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, even, even the most like well-meaning advice, the guy was helping uh, coach a cross country group a couple of years ago. And I remember one of the coaches who, you know, doesn't have a background in sports nutrition. He doesn't even have a background in sports. He's, you know, he's just a teacher doing, yeah. doing the best he can. Um, and he was talking about, you know, it's Halloween is coming up and like, but the, the big meat was like the weekend, like of Halloween. He's like, so you can't like have your Halloween candy till like after the big meat as your like celebration or whatever. And you're just like, Oh boy. You're like, actually dude, Halloween candy is one of the best pre-workout carbs you can have. <laughs> I could write a you, thesis you can, on this. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you can definitely, it's not saying like what you choose has to be candy pre-workout, but like if there's a time to take simple carbs in, it's before, during, and after exercise. Exactly. I've actually, and, I, I made like the yeah. most amazing discovery in February when I realized that normally my, like my go-to is Snickers bars when I'm running, but the problem is they only work when it's like above 70 degrees. Otherwise they get really cold and difficult to eat. 
And I finally realized that Reese's peanut butter cups, you can eat in any temperature and they work. It was a have really, you, such a good you, find. Have you brought this to Reese's? Cause I mean, I think they could, this no, could be a whole thing. I should get a Reese's sponsorship, honestly, <laughs> but only, only the, like the holiday shaped ones. So I raced my hundred dollar with like literally the Reese's hearts in my back. So I'm like pulling out these heart shaped Reese's just like chomping away at them. That's time. amazing. That's amazing. <laughs> so good. So good. <laughs> so actually that, that leads to the, the other thing I wanted to talk about was the um, whole foods as fuel for workouts. Um, it feels like a few years back, that was just the biggest trend was like, we suddenly were just like, oh, goose, gels, sports drinks are terrible. Like, oh, heavens, like these are just the worst things ever. Um, and it feels like the tide has sort of turned on that where it seems like we've maybe come to a much more like reasonable version of like both have, have applications, I guess. Um, yeah. Is that something you've noticed? I mean, I imagine being in the industry, you would see how this uh, affects like things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 no. Um, once again, the demonization thing, right? Pointing the finger and, and saying, this is a bad thing. And I had someone the other day ask me like, kind of the same question, like pudding cup or goo? I'm like, well, actually they're pretty similar. <laughs> you know? um, so whatever works for you, you know, and I, and I, I think different, one nice thing about goo or uh, energy blocks or um, any kind of packaged sports nutrition is you have a little bit more information about the exact amount of calories in the product. And if you are getting pretty serious, incorporating those might give you a good baseline for like, well, if I'm using like one goo an hour and there's 200 calories in my sports, 24 ounces of my sports drink, then, you know, I, I know I'm getting 300 calories and then I'm also going to incorporate these other foods, like maybe some potatoes or whatever, you know, so that is one benefit. But I think once again, you know, sports nutrition isn't a one size fits all, you know, thing. Nutrition in general isn't one size fits all. So different things are going to work for different people. A combination of things are going to work for different people. Um, so figuring it out and, and determining what that special, you know, combination is for you um, is, is going to be important. And I'm glad that we're a little more open to, to different um, options. Mm -hmm. specifically for me, like I like getting a baseline level of calories in my drink, whether it's from our product, Gnarly Futuro, you, you mentioned Tailwind, Goo makes a nice one, you know, looking at your flavor profile and what kind of calories you want to take in, but hide while you're hydrating, getting in a baseline level of calories that maybe you can supplement on top of with other products or with other whole foods, but you know that you're getting in that level of calories because it's easy to forget to eat it's easy to not feel like you want to eat. And so getting it in with hydration, I think is the best way to fuel consistently, which is pretty key. You never want to get in a hydration hole. You never want to get in a caloric hole and you never want to get in an electrolyte hole because it's really hard to climb out of those things. And I've seen people try to and make similar mistakes like you were talking about, you know, ending up in a med tent during one of, one of my Ironman, I, a friend of mine like hadn't taken in any electrolytes during the entire bike. So he decided to, to take one of those elite, like concentrated electrolyte um, products and like squirt a si significant amount in his mouth, like 
<laughs> talk about like gastrointestinal issues, like Oof. same thing. Like your body sees a concentration gradient. It doesn't matter if it's of sugar or of electrolytes or what. And it's like, I'm going to dump all of my water into my GI tract. And so one, you're in the porta potty potentially throwing up. Two, you're dehydrating yourself. So you're going to need that IV afterwards. Like consistent nutrition is key to finishing endurance events. And I think any way you can get that is, is that works for you is, is the way, the right way. I love it. Such a good answer. And I'm, I'm the exact same with, uh, I always put calories in my pack because I know I'm not the world's best eater. So I know yeah. as long as I have that in my pack, I am guaranteed that I'm getting what I absolutely need and anything else is just bonus. Yeah, totally. <laughs> it's interesting. Like this is kind of one of those random stories that's kind of related, but like love it. when I was pregnant with my um, daughter, I remember, like, I feel like that should be a big piece of going through labor as well, right? It's an endurance event. <laughs> Your heart rate is elevated. You're working hard. And for some people, like I, took me 19 hours. Some people, it takes 24, 48, like long periods of time. You don't feel like eating anything. Food is the last thing you want. But having a hydration mix with calories in it, I feel like that was key for me for getting through that. And so any ladies out there that are choosing to have a child and getting ready um, for, for labor, think about your nutrition and think about what might work, what might not work and consider having a hydration drink with calories. Cause I think it makes a big difference. I love it. I love it. Anytime any of my friends who are moms ask if I think they could like handle a hundred miler, I'm like, you handled labor. Like, of course you can do a hundred miler. Like yeah. not a, not a question. <laughs> like really for, for most of them, it's like a break for, yeah, totally. like, oh, that sounds like a great way to spend 30 hours. Like nobody's no asking me for anything. Yeah. Fantastic. Perfect. I get to ask people for everything I need. I get to be the one like asking for like chicken noodle soup or a cookie, like amazing. Totally. Totally. <laughs> okay. Um, before we wrap up, um, I mean, obviously you're the person to ask this supplements. Like when, when someone's looking at a website like gnarly nutrition, I think it's, it can be really overwhelming, right? Like the tent, the temptation to either like fill your basket and like be taking 20 supplements uh, and starting with a supplement regimen of these like 20 supplements that you've read about now, uh, can be, uh, overwhelming. Uh, so any tips for sort of someone who, who maybe is like looking at different supplements and just kind of trying to figure out like where they even want to begin that sure. isn't just like, bye, 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 bye. Cause that seems like a bad idea. <laughs> yeah, completely. Um, and it, I think it's good to look at the, at, at look at it from a very broad space first. So if we don't look at like gnarly nutrition specifically, if we just look at brands or what you're looking for, I think in general, like having third-party certification, you know, like we talked about, um, and then also finding brands that don't make crazy claims about what their product can do for you, because there's really not that much research. Like when I look at Gnarly's products, I'm often describe them to people as pretty like vanilla products. Like they're products that are going to, you know, fuel you. They're products that are going to help with your recovery, but I'm not, we're not making crazy claims about what they can possibly do for you. Um, and I think that's also a good way to choose a brand is look at what they're saying their product can do for you and also look at 
um, whether or not they're talking about research and they're trying to educate around how their product fits into that research. So I think in the sports nutrition space, for the most part, we have a lot of good players. Um, I've already mentioned some few, a few that make good, good products. Um, then if you're looking, if you found a brand that you like and you like what they offer, you know, supplements are called supplements because they should be supplemental. Um, so, you know, they, your, your diet, if you have the time, if you have the energy should be mostly whole, whole foods, right? Um, often life gets in the way and we don't have, you know, all the time that we want, even though we, we have the best intentions. And that's when products like protein powders can be helpful. And I think protein is a great example of something that even endurance athletes need a lot of and probably don't get enough of, um, especially aging athletes. Um, and so looking at your own diet and where the holes might be and how a supplement might help you fill those holes is a great thing to consider. Um, reaching out to the company and telling, giving, like we, I get emails all the time from people that are like, where do you think I should start? This is what I should do. And it's different from doing a dietary consultation with someone where you're looking specifically um, at what they're doing. But if you know the general activities they participate in, how much they're training and where they think they need help, you can make general recommendations of things to try. And I think often a lot of companies will have smaller um, size packaging where you can try a product without buying a huge tub or investing that money in a huge tub. And that's a, another good way to see if, you know, the product that they're marketing is really going to help you in the way you think it will. Mm -hmm. And I do think the trying one at a time and really like monitoring the results is I think just such an important piece of that whole puzzle of like finding what works for you. Because the problem with ordering like five things at a time or like trying five things all at once is you don't really know which one is causing which positive or negative <laughs> impacts, right? Yeah, totally. And I mean, some people are come with very clear idea of what they're looking to get out of it. They're like, I want energy going into the workout. I'm looking at it. I'm looking for pre-workouts. And so then they're taking it a, a step, you know, closer using magnifying glass at that point and looking at like, okay, what ingredients are in your pre-workout versus brand B and what are the dosages and what will I get out of it? And, and maybe that's when you get like a stick pack to try and see if you like it. Um, but I think first figuring out where those holes are in your nutrition what hurdles you're trying to overcome as far as performance and recovery, like those questions, trying to answer those questions will point you in the right direction of what products might be best for you. Love it. Okay. Before we wrap up last question, what's uh, what's coming up for you jujitsu wise, or if there's anything fun on the work side, also want to hear that, but jujitsu <laughs> is much more interesting to me than uh, <laughs> new flavors. Sorry. Apologies I, to the new flavors. <laughs> and and I, I would like to say I'm in full support of your boxing, but I also think you should try jujitsu. So maybe give it a try. Well, now, now I'm like, now I'm like, oh no, now I'm going to have to look up a jujitsu gym in here in, in our town and see if we have one. This I'm is sure the downside with all the travel we do. It's so hard to find a place and commit to it because when you're gone, you know, at least a week out of most months, it's like hard to spend the money on a gym when you know, you're not going to be there Dude, much. One of the most exciting things is traveling to new places and trying new jujitsu gyms. Like that is what Anthony Bourdain did, right? He was, he loved jujitsu. He trained jujitsu and 
he traveled all over the place and he would just go to these different gyms and you get to learn from different people and train with different people. And I guess that's a good point. It's really just getting through that first probably few months where you're like figuring out what the heck you're doing and then you can pretty much show up and, and be fine. Yeah. I mean, there, it, there is a bit of a learning curve for sure. Um, I have, so I just had a tournament last weekend and, uh, just a local tournament and I'm doing, um, IBJJF is like the governing jujitsu bodies, international Brazilian jujitsu federation. And so those are kind of bigger tournaments. I have one in Denver and then, um, I'll be getting ready for worlds at the end of the summer. Um, so yeah, got some of those coming up. Awesome. Oh, last question. I actually asked the, the boxer as well is, uh, any tips for healing bruises? Because I feel like that's a thing that, uh, you tend to have a lot of <laughs> <laughs> not even in a striking sport. I'm showing you why the bruises on my face this morning. My husband was like, babe, what's going on? It doesn't look good for me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like going to my kids elementary school and always get dirty looks. Um, for healing bruises, make sure your iron levels are okay. That would be my, I mean, if you're one, right, there are three groups that are, or three main groups that I see at risk for uh, iron deficiency. And some of those are at risk for B12 deficiency too, which both can affect bruising. Um, so menstruating females, endurance athletes, and plant-based athletes. So um, worth getting your iron, iron level or your ferritin levels checked. Mm-hmm. Love it. Love it. The, uh, the boxer suggested Arnica rub for, <laughs> for most bruises, but yeah, that's, I mean, that's a good one too. <laughs> mine's more, mine's more prevention. Not yeah. I like this. I I'm can not, use the prevention. I prefer the prevention. Yeah. The, I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm not sure I found anything. If you find something that helps them go away quickly, please let me know. <laughs> yeah, I'll keep you posted. Amazing. Okay. Uh, is there somewhere where everyone can follow along with you with gnarly nutrition? What's, what's the best place? Sure. On Instagram, we're at gnarly nutrition. Um, me, I'm just at S H A O G R A D Y. So Shaw O'Grady, you're only going to find jujitsu stuff and pictures of my kids. Um, Perfect. and maybe like cookies I make, cause I like to make cookies a lot. So amazing awesome well thank you so much for for chatting shannon this was such a blast thank you molly i I really enjoyed it too it it was it was a ton of fun thanks so much for tuning into the consummate athlete podcast if you want to hear more training racing and endurance sport advice make sure you subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating and review you can also subscribe to our newsletter at consummateathlete.com for a weekly dose of inspiration and advice straight to your inbox 